The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about big numbers, crunchy deals, and nasty spats. I'm Anthony Curry, and I'm here with my colleague Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. So Donald Trump is back on our radar and bigly. The fallout from the U.S. president-elect's tweet storms is hanging over this week's international auto show in Detroit, and his plan to spend $1 trillion on the nation's infrastructure is gathering more traction and criticism. We start, though, with the Donald himself. On Wednesday, he held his first press conference in months. It came replete with the usual stream of tangential comments we expect, sideswipes at his campaign rival Hillary Clinton, praise for his Miss Universe contest, and even a mention that he's a germaphobe. What he, or rather his lawyer, did outline in a degree of detail, though, was his plan to avoid any business conflicts of interest while in the Oval Office. Joining us to dig into those details is our Washington columnist, Gina Chon. Hi, Gina. Welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. So this plan has been a long time coming. Uh, He was elected two and a half months ago. He delayed this plan at some point before Christmas. Now we've finally seen or heard about it. What's your take? Yes, it is a bit disappointing uh, given that Trump faces unprecedented business interests for someone who's been elected to the White House. So this is an issue that has been hounding him for weeks now, um, and we've all been eagerly waiting to hear what his plan would be. But he stops short of even sort of the bare ethics standard minimum uh, that experts have called on him for in terms of just establishing a blind trust that is run by an independent person. Um, Instead, he's going to hand over management to his two eldest sons, plus Trump business executive. And um, they said they are going to sort of, you know, have a Chinese wall, if you will, and the new business won't be making any new foreign deals, any new domestic ones will have to be vetted by an ethics advisor. But uh, all this is pretty weak window dressing, and there's already a lot of calls from government civics groups saying how disappointing the plan is. So let's just, I mean, let's just remind ourselves before we dig into even more details. So he not only has a lot of businesses here in the U.S., his, his business expand, extends to a number of countries abroad, which have all, has, has caused other issues we can get into uh, in a minute, certainly on, on the, the second part of the lawyer's plans on, on the so-called emoluments issue. Um, but why, why is it window dressing? If he hands over to his sons and another executive, they have a chief compliance officer, they have an ethics officer that will vet any domestic deals and there are no foreign deals. What's the danger? Well, it's still going to be run by people close to him. I mean, obviously his sons are relatives that will have a close connection to Trump and they've already been part of the transition team and have been part of processes of vetting certain uh, cabinet appointees and, and other people in on the White House staff. So there's already a blurring of the lines, if you will, and this just makes it even worse. I mean, as, as Trump said yet again on the press conference, and you know he was quite bold about this, he said, I don't have to do anything. I could quite happily run my business and the U.S. government as president. 
and there's nothing to stop me doing that. I mean, he's right. I mean, okay, he may be overstating his ability to do both. Who knows? But he is right that there are, there's nothing to stop him from doing both if he wanted to. Yeah, no, and he obviously, uh, as you said repeatedly, <laughs> made that point and bragged about how he even rejected a deal over the weekend, some sort of $2 billion real estate project in, in the Middle East. But presidents have traditionally abided by the federal conflicts of interest rules, even though technically they don't have to, because obviously you're going to be leader of the country and you want to hold yourself up to the highest standards. It's also a bit hypocritical if you didn't, because all of his uh, cabinet appointees and White House staff have to abide by those rules. So you would think that uh, the president would want to uh, follow the same. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me about the conference, too, that he said was, or his lawyer who was outlining the plan, was that it would be unfair for him to sell his assets at, I think she said, distressed prices and that, it, it you know, his brand is tied to him and it's not fair, which it strikes me again as, as kind of a, a strange way of setting it up and saying, OK, listen, we're still going to run this business. I mean, it shouldn't be about if he's going to lose money on deals or not. Yeah, I mean, during the campaign, he repeatedly said that he doesn't care about his business and that it would be nothing to him, actually, if he won the presidency, because that would be his most important job. And he wouldn't care, actually, what would happen to his business venture. I mean, obviously, you know, he's probably overstating that and exaggerating a bit. But if you are going to run for president, this is something you should have thought of was going to be an issue all along considering his vast business interests and he made it seem like he was ready to take the appropriate steps to to ensure that he was distancing himself um, and now he just sets himself up for more criticism when he really wants to be focusing on his economic plans. Well, I mean, let's, let's face it. I mean, he seems to change his mind on what appropriate means on any given day. I mean, they've also come up with this plan to deal with emoluments, which is this idea, I believe, uh, in the Constitution that you cannot take any gifts or anything like gifts from uh, foreign governments. And the lawyer, she seems to have come up with a very, very, very simple definition for what it is, which is just paying a hotel bill is not an emolument. And she's really getting it down to very small things as opposed to saying, Look, there's this great big hotel, especially right near the White House, owned by Trump, that suddenly everyone from foreign governments wants to use to be seen to be currying favor with Trump. It's not whether they're paying the bill, it's that they're going there to start with. No, exactly. I mean, frankly, before uh, Trump was elected, the hotel was maybe about half full. They had to cut prices um, a few times because they uh, weren't seeing much demand. But after the election, they started seeing a lot of business. And you've seen um, various foreign embassies here in D.C. from Bahrain and others book mm. the hotel for various events. It's sold out for inauguration weekend coming up, including the presidential suite, which was, I think, going for $100,000 a night. So, yeah, the issue isn't as much, you know, the simple payment of uh, your hotel bill, but what people think they can get from holding an event there or uh, or booking rooms there in terms of influence. And let's just be clear, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what he said, maybe you can clear this up. Did he say that any payment or any profit from foreign dignitaries staying in hotels would be given to the U.S. Treasury? He said any payment. So payment? De- definitely payment, not yeah, profit. Yeah, so however they end up parsing that versus other things. I mean, frankly, you know, 
you can have payments, and but the emoluments clause also um, includes gifts and other things that uh, it depends on how you read the technicalities of the law. All right, so what happens next? So he hasn't satisfied the ethics rules in a lot of people's minds, you're saying. The Democrats don't control Congress. So do they really have much power to do anything, given that at the moment we're seeing a Republican-led Congress, which, OK, they're giving certain nominees a bit of a hard time. Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State nominee, has been given a hard time by Senator Rubio and one or two others on the Republican side. But it's not as if the Republicans have cared too much about the nominees having all of their own ethics and, uh, and financial paperwork up to snuff before trying to get them in front of the committees. So is there really much that can be done to call Donald Trump on any ethics lapses? financially? Yeah, the, the Republicans have definitely sort of rushed through trying to get these hearings for Trump's nominees, as you said, but Democrats do have some leverage. I mean, they are in the minority, but the Republicans don't have uh, the 60 votes needed to pass major legislation. Like if Trump wants to have success with his tax reform plan or infrastructure spending, he will likely need um, around eight <laughs> Democrats uh, to really pass his efforts. And you've already seen the Democrats actually successfully get um, several hearings delayed, including for uh, billionaire investor um, Wilbur Ross, who's up for Commerce Secretary, uh, and several others who have not yet um, had their financial disclosures certified by the government ethics office. So they do actually have some leverage, and uh, Republicans, in fact, have also expressed their own concerns because, frankly, I think they don't want this to be a distraction and, and get Congress bogged down um, in these ethics concerns. So th this is actually something that could continue to haunt him. Yeah, I mean, because it seems to me if he doesn't clear this up, he is opening himself up to anybody making any sort of accusation that some foreign dignitary stayed in a hotel and he didn't donate the money to, you know, the Treasury or any host of problems. And it seems like that could dog him throughout his entire you know, presidency. Yeah, and he really needs, like I said, some Democrats at least to support his plans. And he really wants to start off on a pretty strong footing. He's already starting negotiations on his tax cut plan with various congressional leaders and, and others. So um, he really can't afford to be distracted by these ethics issues that, you know, could be of his own making. So basically, we're, we're looking at uh, a Donald Trump who because he hasn't dealt with uh, the ethics issues, could be just dragged through the mire for the next four years, plus or minus, just because he doesn't want to sort out his business conflicts. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen he hasn't even taken office yet, and this conversation about his conflicts, the conflicts of his uh, wealthy cabinet members, have basically dominated Congress in the last few weeks, so it's it's already become a bit of a problem for him. Gina, great. Thanks for coming on the show. Very interesting discussion. I'm sure we'll have you back on very soon indeed. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. turn to the Motor City. This week, all the major automakers throughout the world are meeting there to show off their latest models. Anthony was there taking stock, and there's been a lot going on in the auto industry. We have President-elect Donald Trump tweeting almost endlessly about various car manufacturers moving their factories overseas, even some manufacturers that are 
planning to move it that aren't. Anthony, why don't you tell us kind of the health of the car industry, what are their major concerns, and then we can you know, certainly talk about Donald Trump and, and kind of how he sees the industry and how he thinks that mm. he's saving jobs by yeah. keeping, keeping factories here in the U.S. Okay, so let's, let's take the Donald Trump tweet storm of the past week and a half or so and just we'll just <laughs> right. put it to one side let's, just, let's, let's assume that wasn't happening although of course we we'd heard rumblings already in the run-up to the election in fact he was attacking ford early on in his campaign uh, for um setting up wanting to set up a new plant in mexico but we'll, we'll deal with that in a minute um but look, the auto industry uh, is gathering this week in in detroit uh, at in some respects the high point of the industry in quite some time last year in the u.s uh, there are almost 18 million vehicles sold. It's slightly more than the year before. It's a record, second record in the row. And that sounds fantastic, right? But you look at what else is going on. Okay, at that level, you're starting to replace a lot more cars uh, that were getting old on the road. So really, is there much more to run? Um, you've got interest rates going up, which means that consumers will find it more expensive to go out and borrow money uh, to buy a car. Um, and you're seeing car makers putting out, give, offering even more incentives, about 12.2% on average of the average uh, transaction price, it's called, is going on incentives. That's the highest it's been since the financial crisis. So you've got all these wonderful signs. The market's up. It's looking great. We're getting lots of investments in um, connectivity, autonomous vehicles, ride sharing, car sharing. It all sounds kind of great. Well, the catch is, is that you've got this potential downside of, you know, we're at the top of the market. It could get a lot worse. And also, autonomous driving, driverless cars, I think all sounds great, but that's also a very big threat to the industry. You've got Apple, Google, and others trying to get into the so, space. So I, I have a question about that. Is it a threat to the industry because, like you said, you have all the tech players in Silicon Valley getting involved in it? Or is it also a threat to the industry because, presumably, again, I don't know what this is going to look like, does it mean that fewer people are going to be buying fewer cars? Well, that's the thing. It's, it's unknown. In fact, one of the really interesting sort of non-car events at the show uh, was um, Ford had laid this on, actually. They had four mayors of U.S. cities come and talk uh, on a round table from Atlanta, Chicago, Columbus, Ohio, and obviously Detroit. And the guy from, I forget his name now, the mayor from Atlanta said, Look, we, we recently struck a deal with Delta to keep them in the, in, the, in the city for another 20 years, and we were talking about you know, how much car parking space they would need. And we're thinking, well, on the one hand, autonomous vehicles means you won't need as much because people won't necessarily own as many cars. But on the other hand, you could have more ride sharing, which means there could be more cars. You'll utilize more cars, but you'll go through them more quickly and, and you need to replace them more quickly. So it's really not known yet what the impact may be. There may well be fewer cars in total on the road, but they may, they may need replacing more. Uh, more frequently than they do now. So it's it's all a bit up in the air. So I think from the perspective of total sales numbers, it's kind of unclear that the real danger for automakers is whether they become the Nokia of the car industry, i.e., you know, think of Nokia. You, they used to provide all the handsets uh, for phone, well, so many of the handsets for phones a decade or so ago. And now, you know, you hardly hear them. I think it's part of Microsoft now has been written down. That's what uh, people are worried about may happen to the major car makers if they don't get their acts together. Because Already you've got about 70% of the value of what goes into a car, the real value add going into a car, coming from others like suppliers and other technology platforms. Now, that doesn't mean the automakers will lose it completely and just become builders of shells, but they each have their own various strategies. You've got Ford and GM. Ford especially has gone out and bought lots of different mini platforms, try and meld them together to say, we're doing lots in this. GM says that we've had connectivity for 20 years through our OnStar platform. We think we're doing well, and we've got an investment in Lyft, the ride-sharing platform, and we're doing other things. And then you get Sergio Marchionne, who runs Fiat Chrysler, saying, look, we're never going to build anything that's going to be as good as, let alone better than, what Silicon Valley is going to provide. So 
basically we're looking at partnerships. And they've so, got this big partnership with Google, for so, example. So let's talk about Fiat uh, Chrysler because uh, they were name-checked uh, earlier uh, with Donald Trump's yeah. press speech, and he said, listen, this is great. They're, they're terrific. <laughs> can't mm, remember the exact turn of phrase he used because it, they decided to, to build a big plant here in the United States. You know, was, was there any concern when, when you were in Detroit among car executives about Trump kind of going out there, taking to Twitter, a lot of what he said, I mean, you wrote about this earlier with Toyota. It's it's just not, some of it's just not even true. I mean, yeah. his facts aren't even correct. Is there any concern that, you know, this is going to be a major problem? Yeah, there's, there's a huge concern. In fact, Mark, you only said if, if the rules change enough on cross-border tariffs, and the, the issue there is not about whether you get dinged for having factories over there. It's more, well, I mean, it partly is, but... Trump could change the tariff rules so that cost of goods made to, in Mexico to be sold here, you know, parts, whatever, even if you manu- even if you put the parts together here, could the tariffs could go up enough? He said, if they do go up that enough, enough, we'll have to think about moving our operations. The whole point of having the operations in Mexico is they are lower cost. And they're lower cost because wages are lower, because uh, price of land is lower, because other things are lower. Um, and look, I, the, the issue, though, for Mexico versus America is Mexico is the place to go basically for most car makers to build your smaller cars because as we discovered in the financial crisis in fact we knew that even beforehand the major automakers couldn't turn a profit in America the major US automakers on smaller cars because of all the restrictions they had from the unions and their old liabilities which they've got rid of but it's largely but it's still a big issue trying to make a profit on small cars Marchioni even said himself the two worst investments by far Fiat Chrysler has made in the past eight years are our two small U.S. cars, the Dodge Dart and the Chrysler 200. And is that because it's more expensive to buy, like, a big truck or a big SUV? Or is yeah. that because the demand is for the, the trucks and the well, SUVs? Well, the, the, the demands are high. In fact, uh, last year, I think 60% of cars sold, those almost 18 million cars sold, were classified as trucks and SUVs. And you include the smaller trucks and S- smaller SUVs and the CUVs, as they're called now. Um, and that's up from 56%. It could go up to uh, to two thirds in the next year or two. That actually is the good signal for the car makers. The actually the incentives on these cars are much lower than the two twelve point two percent average I mentioned earlier on. So that's actually good news, which is why you're seeing everyone getting back into it. So Ford said on Monday, "A, we're upgrading our F one hundred and fifty truck, the biggest seller in the U.S. of any any vehicle for the past forty years. We're bringing back the Bronco SUV. Oh, you remember awesome, the Bronco right? OJ Simpson's getaway car? <laughs> we're bringing back the Ranger uh, truck as well, but we're not doing." it for two or three years they've been talking about doing it for a while but why are they announcing it now because of donald trump why is chrysler announcing its plans now for its one billion plant in in michigan is it because of donald trump well they're not doing it because of donald trump but are they announcing it precisely this week because of donald trump quite possibly these plans were in in in, in motion for quite some time basically mark only said last year we're getting rid of the, of the chrysler 200 and the dodge dart we're basically going to, to, to all bigger vehicles that's part of his plan there's nothing new in this in fact, he said the most interesting line about cars. He said, he said, there's no point trying to p- compete in small cars anymore. It's shark-infested waters, and it's not good for our shareholders. Until we can get a good economic return on it, there's no point. And that basically means going to Mexico. And he, said, he also said about Mexico, for now, it doesn't matter what Mexico offers us in, in terms of incentives. There's no point going there until we get clarity on what exactly the Trump administration wants to do. So um, you wrote about Toyota because this is a very uh, interesting situation. So Trump sent out a tweet about them moving a factory that he thought that he was that they were going to move to Mexico, but it was actually uh, from the U.S. But it's actually a factory that was in Canada. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So, <laughs> so he didn't even get the the factory. No, exactly. Right? This is, this but, is but, for, but but the shares fell. And, and, the and, shares and fell the, a little yeah. bit. I mean, not not that much yeah. considering that on the this well, I say the same day that. 
the, the, the day he said he unleashed the tweet here, Ford and GM fell 3% or so. Toyota shares fell about 2%, 1.5%, I think, in Toyota the, in, in Japan the following day. So it wasn't as bad as it could have been. I think in part it's because people were looking at the tweet saying, but you've got the location wrong. It's not where, I mean, it's in a different part of Mexico, so you've got that wrong. And secondly, what they're setting up is actually a plant to make cars that exported to Canada there as opposed to to the u.s but it expert i mean this goes back to the holiday you, you take trump seriously or literally uh, which is you know the big thing since the since before the election and i think taking him literally is going to get you in a lot of trouble and, and Toyota did come out with a bit of a mealy mouth tweet but uh mouth response initially but then they said look we're going to be investing billions of dollars in the u.s region over the next few years anyway uh, so that you shouldn't really worry too much about that but yeah i think there is a concern among automakers, that they stand, and other companies as well, frankly, that they stand to get in trouble from a tweet. In fact, Dan Gilbert, one of the local businessmen in Detroit, was on a panel, uh, and he's actually one of the people who's been most responsible for bringing other companies back to the center of Detroit and help rejuvenating it. He was asked, what's the most important thing that Donald Trump can do for business? And he said, stop tweeting. (laughs) <laughs> and you know he's one of the few people to go on record. It's funny actually. Uh, at a, at a, uh, another event on the same stage a day or so later, Carlos Ghosn, the CEO of both Renault and Nissan, uh, was asked, you know, what, how do you sort of think about what to do uh, with Trump and his tweets and Trump and his, and his policy about Mexico? And Nissan has a fair number of plants down in Mexico as well as here in the U.S. That they have the biggest plant of any automaker in the U.S. is is is, is in I think uh, Tennessee or Michigan or, or, or Mississippi for them. Um, it wasn't his, his verbal response that was interesting. It was his facial response. He, first of all, on the first part of the question, he started basically sucking his teeth in his cheeks and looked rather trepidatious. And then he just tilted his head in a very going way and looked exceptionally irritated. And half the audience started laughing because he knew he wouldn't say anything raucous about it or rude about it because he never does. He's, he's become pretty good at keeping his opinions to himself. Um, but on his face was splattered the, oh, God, I don't want to talk about this, even though he must have known he was going to get asked. Right, right, about Twitter. Well, um, so I think the likelihood of, of Donald Trump quitting Twitter at the moment, or at least, you know, stopping, you know, bullying and humiliating various hey, look, car makers hey, look, and in companies. A, in just over a week's time, he's going to have the POTUS Twitter account as well. So. <laughs> yeah, double, right, we're going to have to follow two Twitter accounts. Um, it seems probably unlikely. So, um, all right, well, thank you, Anthony. This was uh, definitely interesting. My pleasure. So for our final segment, we'll move on to possibly one of the only unifying ideas in the presidential election last year, and that was infrastructure. Donald Trump's plan is to spend at least a trillion dollars getting everything from water to roads to bridges to rails sorted out in this country. We have a couple of colleagues joining us today. First of all, Richard Beals, one of our editors. Uh, You've been looking at uh, the the, the Trump plan. What do you make of it? Well, Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro, both of Wilbur Ross is nominated to be Commerce Secretary, Navarro, since putting out this plan, has been nominated for a a new role in the White House. So these guys do matter. Um, It's only one, you know, they would be the first to say probably it's only one way to fund infrastructure, but it is a new idea, and they provided some numbers around it, so it's a good one to take a look at. They want to raise a trillion dollars, all private sector money, with a caveat, which we'll come to in a second. And the idea is that with some government help for to encourage people to to make the riskiest kind of investment, what, what we call equity, um, you can then encourage lenders to come in on top of that and lend, and you can do a trillion dollars worth of, of projects. They've made some fairly aggressive assumptions about leverage, for example. They've said the typical project in this program can be five parts debt to one part equity, and that's that's pretty aggressive. What are we normally looking at? Probably more like three to one for okay. a toll road or something like that. Five to one would be quite a lot. It depends. I mean, if, if, if a municipality, let's say, has said, right, 
let, let's say it's a school. A municipality has said, we'll pay for the school if somebody will build it. We'll pay a yeah. monthly for the school. Uh, then it's a fixed amount, totally predictable. You can borrow more. But if it's a toll road where it depends on the number of cars right. and how much operating costs turn out to be and stuff like that, then it, you, you need more equity and less debt because the, the, lend, the lenders won't take that kind of risk. I mean, let, let's be clear as well. There's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the idea they come up with of, of using a mixture of public and private money. But, I mean, back in the crisis, we were, I mean, the only thing I think we, we harangued the then Obama administration for on, on various plans to get us out of the crisis on, you know, TALF and other asset-backed forms was just how much money these guys might make from investing in it. Well, and I think that's that's perhaps the danger here too, because the the caveat I was talking about, the big slug of government money here. So let's take a a million-dollar project. There's so on their maths of five to one debt to equity, that's a hundred about one hundred and sixty-seven thousand dollars of equity. But they want to give more than one hundred and forty thousand of that back to the person who provides it as a tax credit. So as long as you're a taxpayer. In some other, right. for some other reason, you make some other profit somewhere, you can get a big tax break and get almost all your money back. Now, the, there's a couple of dangers with that. One is that that distorts the financing, and the lender, although they would disagree with this, the authors, Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro, I'm sure, and it does depend a little how you structure it, how easily you get the money back. Right. Um, but a, a lender who sees an investor, an equity investor, get almost all their money back is going to say, well, that's not really equity anymore. Yeah. So that's not going to count. Um, and the other problem is, if you could get almost all your money back straight away, you're not very invested in making the project succeed right. uh, for the long term. And all these are long term projects, and you want it to succeed. You don't want people getting their money back in short, in too short order, because. Uh, it means you, you're not going to be motivated to make it work. Yeah, I mean, these can be pretty long-term projects just to get going, let alone to then run them, right? Right, and it, you know, it could easily turn into what looks much more like a, a tax giveaway. And, of course, it's very important to Republicans that all these things should be what they call revenue neutral. So for every dollar you give away, you get a dollar back in, right. in some other way. And they've, they've made that maths work, but only by being aggressive with assumptions. What other ways could be used for a government looking to ramp up spending on infrastructure? Well, there's, there's a program called Build America Bonds, which ran for a while, and nearly $200 billion worth of funding came out of that. That was a direct government subsidy of debt. So the private sector would lend. The government would basically subsidize it's about a third of a percentage point of interest on, on every bond. So that's one way. It depends on the type of project. That was aimed at municipalities raising money. Uh, direct government funding would be another way. Again, Republicans don't like this, yeah. but the government pays 3% right now for 30-year money. You're not going to get, you know, Wilbur Ross and Peter Navarro reckon that equity needs 10% over 30 years and private sector debt needs 5%. So if you can and do rising. It, and rising. And if you can do it for 3%, which might also rise, but when you do it for 3%, it's an important long-term project. Why not do it? And you think Some with, projects with, with all these business leaders now, uh, now allegedly going into the cabinet or possibly going in the cabinet, you think they'd at least know how to do that uh, and, uh, cheaply? Yeah, and you know, the, 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 the other problem, which they're absolutely right to identify the authors of this study, is it's been so hard in some circumstances like pipelines to get approvals and then to get certainty that the approvals will hold under the next administration or whatever. And if you're going to invest 30 for, and get your return over 30 years, you need to know that whatever you're investing in is going to be there for 30 years and some future government isn't going to take it away. Yeah. And you also don't want to spend 10 years doing feasibility studies. You want to know that within some reasonable time, you know, you do the necessary things, but within some reasonable time, you will then get approval and you can do the thing. So there, there is a whole, all the financing would be easier if the process could be 
cleaned up so that you actually have some certainty about when you're going to get approval or not, and that, that once you get it, it'll be there. Now, let's dig into a bit more of the minutiae about looking at say, a real-world example. But New York City has been investing billions of dollars in infrastructure. We've got a uh, new associate editor, Tom uh, Berkeley, here to talk about what's been going on with New York City, where, of course, we've just this month opened up the extension of the queue line up the up 2nd Avenue. Tom, you were looking at this earlier this week. What lessons could Trump and his administration learn from what's been going on in the Big Apple? You want to have your ducks lined up in a row, and you need to have your money and some kind of uh, certainty set up at the start and adequate financing to actually carry out projects which are going to take a very long time. One of the big items in the Port Authority, that's the, the joint venture between uh, New, New Jersey and New York that, uh, that runs a lot of the infrastructure in the area, you know, one of the big projects on this new rolling 10-year plan is to redo the Port Authority bus terminal. It's probably on everyone's top five list of eyesores in New York. Anyone who actually goes through it. Uh, wishes they hadn't normally. Pretty much wishes they hadn't. But, you know, it's pretty essential. It, it takes more commuters than any other facility in the in the city, uh, 230,000 people a day. Replacing it and replacing it while trying to keep the current facility open uh, will take it probably 15 years by a realistic estimate. Now, in the budget that the Port Authority has set up for the next 10 years, all of $32 billion, they're allocating $3.5 billion for the bus terminal. So that's maybe a third of the final cost. Uh, they're hoping to get money from the feds, maybe some private sector money, but that's all sketchy. That just raises the odds that what's going to happen, it gets stretched out. It doesn't take 15 years. It takes 20. The costs go up. It just could be another boondoggle like the Second Avenue subway or like the transit hub down at the World Trade Center, another uh, Port Authority project which just opened uh, late last year at a mere $2 billion. That's 50 percent. Uh, sorry, 100 percent cost overrun. Yeah, I think New York City is a great microcosm of how this could work and all the wrenches that could be thrown into these you know, projects. Our uh, predictions panel that we had earlier this week, some of our guests, Lance Fritz, who was the CEO of Union Pacific, and Barbara Novick, who is the vice chair of BlackRock, you know, they were making this point that like, for example, the Tappan Zee Bridge, like how many studies did they do? Like where to put the bridge, how to rebuild it, should they rebuild it, where should they move it? All these all these little things that they had to look at before they could actually break ground and start building this thing. And this is just one bridge. So if we're talking about a trillion dollars in you know, spending and think about all the localities and municipalities and everybody's competing interests to get these projects going, and it could probably, that, that might be a real problem sorting through all this kind of stuff. And like already with the Port Authority, they're, they're bickering, right, because it's two states, New Jersey and New York, over who's going to fund it and, and, and the money and how it's going to all work. Well, there are, I'm not sure if it's four or five potential ways and sites on which it will be built, some using the existing site, some using part of the existing site. So that's, that's going to drag things out. And don't forget, I mean, the Port Authority is an inherently political body. This is the instrument, the, the institution that, uh, you know, was central to Bridgegate. And um, that's the, uh, uh, the infamous blocking of the traffic on the Washington Bridge that sort of undermined uh, Chris Christie's presidential ambitions. And the Port Authority was also fined the first time by a munibond issuer recently for um, steering money that was meant for a tunnel under the Hudson River and steering it to a bridge project that was a pet project of Chris Christie. Um, now, in the latest package of things, uh, in this $32 billion spending plan, uh, Governor um, Andrew Cuomo of New York has gotten his share back by s sending a lot of money to New York City airports. 
including, and this was the one that staggers me, a billion and a half dollars for a 2.5 mile rail line from LaGuardia Airport to the New York City subway. They'd be better off just giving everyone money for a taxi, wouldn't they, at that, that level? You almost would. I mean, I like the idea of public transit, but I, there's got to be a better way to do it than that. Yeah. So, I mean, Richard, bringing it back to you, um, this is... We're heaping, as, as Tom's just described, lots of political and local issues onto uh, the debate here, and that's without getting into the financing. Where, were Navarro and Ross even considering any of that in their plan, or are they doing very high level? They're considering it a little bit. It's only a first go at a plan. It's one piece of a variety of different financing sources that they would admit might might be wielded. Uh, they They sort of touch on Jen's issue of all these approvals and all these different things you have to do. They want to avoid things like the, you know, a lot of this paper was about why Trump is better than Clinton. It came out just before the election. Um, So they want to avoid things like Hillary Clinton's proposed infrastructure bank, which they said would be hugely bureaucratic because it's basically government lending. So everything would, so not only would all the approvals take longer, but the financing would take longer to approve in addition to the actual whatever you want to build taking longer to be approved. So they, they do address that. But it's, you know, these things end up, the federal government can do what it likes, but these things end up local. So it's between two states in New York, or it's between a city, you know, two counties somewhere else in the US. So all these things come into play, and it's really hard to avoid some of them. And that's one of the reasons infrastructure projects in the US are so expensive. Okay, guys, thanks for coming and took us through that. I'm sure we'll be uh, investigating infrastructure a fair bit in the future. Okay, well, that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Anthony. Also, Gina Chan, Richard Beals, and Tom Berkeley. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Thanks for joining us.